0: guys are here. It's week five of our series called hashtag not my church. Now Jesus started the church less than 75 years ago from the point that um, these letters show up. But in 75 years, it seems like almost everything has run off of the rails. And so here it is. The re- the risen Jesus takes to calling John and says, John, I have a message that I want you to send to my church churches, seven different churches. And he John sends these letters to to remind them. Jesus has this idea that he wants to remind them about where it was that they've come from, and he wants them to to repent and to return to the mission and the message of the church. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at the first four churches, the first four letters that were written. And I don't know about for you, but for me, those letters have been um, really incredibly interesting to dig into. And I've walked away challenged every single week by what it was that Jesus was saying to those churches because it wasn't just something that applied to them, but it certainly was something that applied to my life. And my hope is that it's applied to us as a church in a greater context. You know, um, this past week I heard a quote a quote that reminded me about why it is that we um, are looking at this letters. And the quote said this, it said, a foolish man ignores his mistakes. A foolish man ignores his mistakes. A smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Hmm. And if ever, if ever there was a letter that was written that I was like, ooh, I want us to learn from the mistakes of others and not do this ourselves, then this letter that we're gonna look at today is that one. Today's letter is probably, it's the most toe curling of all the letters that we've looked at so far. It's the one that all week long, as I wrestled with the passage, God continued to smash my toes over and over again. So if your toes get smashed, please know it's not me. It's just what Jesus wrote. All right. So we're going to put all the blame back on him for just a moment. Now the church that we're looking at today is called Sardis, right? It's in the city of Sardis and you can find this letter in Revelation chapter three verses one through six. Now, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, so if you flip all the way to the very back, or if you're like me and you like the digital version, you just turn it on, just scroll all the way to the very bottom to find Revelation. while you're scrolling there, I want to give you just a little bit of background on the city of Sardis. Now, if you've been with us for several weeks, then you might have noticed a pattern, right? These seven churches kind of make like a giant circle through Turkey, right? So it started, John was there on Patmos, a small island that was just outside of Ephesus. And then the first letter went to Ephesus. And from there, we travel a little bit north to, if you're with us, Smyrna. That's the best way to say that one. My wife says I've instantly made her famous with that. Listen, when she says good stuff, she says good stuff, all right? So from Smyrna, you continue on north to Pergamum or Pergamos, right? And that's the northernmost of all the cities. And then last week, we turned and came back south down to Thyatira. And then you have this city, which is Sardis. Now, most people, most scholars believe that the reason that the churches are written in the order that they are is because that's how somebody would have traveled from city to city to city to deliver the different letters. And so we have them in this order of kind of delivery. And I would say that there's probably a lot of truth to that as far as what was going on, but the city of Sardis actually is closer to Smyrna than it is to Thyatira. Not by a whole lot, but by a little bit. And so it wouldn't necessarily have made sense for them to have gone all the way up north and then come back down to get this city. But nonetheless, we we come to this city. Now, this city was a great city. In fact, it used to be a capital city of what was called the Lydian Empire, In fact, most of you sitting here probably heard about one of the greatest kings of the Lydian Empire. You don't even know it yet, but he went by the name of Midas. You've heard the story of King Midas before? The man with the golden touch. Everything that he touched turned to gold. And of course, the story goes that once he got his golden touch, that he soon learned that even the food that he desired to eat would turn to gold. And in fact, some different variations of it tell the story of his beautiful daughter coming and he reaches out to comfort her and she turns to gold. And just besieged with all kinds of sorrow, he seeks the gods and says, please help me to get rid of this awful curse. It's not a blessing. It's a curse that you've given me. And so he's told to go down to a river, the Petulis River, I probably didn't say it right. That's all right, I'm gonna go with it. that's how you say it. Right? And so in the Petulus, he washes and the, anything that had been turned to gold could be washed away from the gold. What's interesting is, is that that river, if you go to it and you look at the alluvian uh, soils that are in it, the gold runs straight through it. And that's the myth about where it comes from. In fact, there was so much gold in the river that it's thought that Sardis was the home of coinage. It was the first place that coins were developed. In fact, they were known for a process that they developed of separating gold and silver so that you had the most purest of elements that were there. And so you can imagine it was an incredibly wealthy city because it was wealthy, it needed to be able to be easy to defend. And so this city sits up on a plateau that's about 1,500 feet in the air. And on all sides of the city, the cliff just drops down. And so you have these walls that are up around the city and then cliffs that are down below it. And it makes for almost an impenetrable fortress that only had one way to get to the city. The Southern gates were the only way that you could get to it. And it made it incredibly easy to defend because the Southern gate was not an easy path up. In fact, it was a winding and narrow path to get to it. And so the city was this fortress that nobody could get into. Recently, this city has been excavated doesn't exist as a city any longer, but it's been excavated, and they found remains of one of the largest synagogues in all of Asia Minor. Now, synagogue is really just, it's a, another name for a Jewish and, in the first century, Christian house of worship. They didn't worship somewhere different. They kept going to the temples. Now it was to this really large church that Jesus wrote this letter. Let's look at it together. It says, unto the angel of the church in Sardis write this, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God remember then what you received and heard keep it and repent if you will not wake up I'm gonna come like a thief you'll not know at what hour I will come against you but there are still a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they Are worthy the ones who conquer will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out from the book of life I will confess his name before my father and before his angels he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches let's pray Jesus what a incredible letter he wrote As we get ready to dive into this, I pray that you would just begin even now to break our hearts to hear the message that you have. God, that we would have ears that would be open. God, I I pray more than anything that we would not be a lifeless church, but that we would be filled with an abundant life, an overflowing life. God, that that would be our joy. And that it would be our joy then to continue that mission and the message. And we just give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, earlier I had you guys turn and tell somebody about a day that you will never forget. You know, there are lots of days in our lives that we will never forget. I remember one, I was in seventh grade. That was a long time ago. I was in seventh grade and it was second period. It was just uh, a little before nine o'clock. Got into the room and the teacher was standing at the board and she was writing the prompt for our creative writing journals for the day. It was English class. She's putting all of that on the board And as she's writing on the board and instructing us about what it is that we were going to be doing in class that day, all of a sudden there was a loud boom outside of the school. It was like a gigantic clap of thunder. Now in Oklahoma, that would be something that you'd be thinking is pretty normal, except for when we looked outside, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Later in the morning, I learned what the giant boom was. You see, just about 20 miles from where I was at, the Alfred P. Murrah building had just been blown up. I'll never forget that day. I remember where I was at. I remember what we were doing. I remember all of the emotions about all of it. I'm sure as you think through your lives, there are days just like that. Maybe 9 11. My mom talks about the day when Kennedy was shot and assassinated. There's a day that she remembers. I remember when the Challenger blew up. There are all kinds of days that we remember. And some of those days, we've even said, I will never forget whatever that is. Those days change everything, right? Nothing's ever the same after those kinds of days. Now I can only imagine that the day that this letter showed up in the church of Sardis was one of those sort of days. Could you imagine sitting there like this with a group of people gathered together and hearing a letter like this that was written to you? Now like the other letters, Jesus opens up and and he gives a statement about who he is, right? He he says to them, he says, I'm the one that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you've been with us for the entire series, then you've probably heard me say a couple of times that the seven stars represent the seven different churches. But what in the world, what in the world does him who has the seven spirits of God mean? Now, several weeks ago, I was here and I listened to Caleb as he preached. He did a great job. And I love listening to him preach, number one, because I didn't have to preach. Number two, he did a great job. And as he was preaching that morning, he began to treat, to, to teach on the triune nature of God. Now, whew, that's heavy hitting stuff, right? This idea of God who is um, one being but is three separate persons who are co-equal in all things. And I listened to him as he began to, to struggle through teaching that concept. And I was like, look, man, you could have chosen a lot of different things to try to tackle in a day. Besides that. And he did a good job, but at face value, this looks like Jesus is saying, God is not three persons, but seven, right? He's the one who has the seven spirits of God. So, Did like Jesus all of a sudden get confused about who God is? I mean, like he's one being with three persons. What does he mean? The seven spirits of God. And as I I dug into this statement, I found that there's a whole lot that's at play right here. And so I just wanted to take a moment as we get ready to dive in to just shine a little bit of a light on some of those things. Here's the first thing that I want you to know about what Jesus is saying here. And that is the number seven. Now, numbers in the Bible, a lot of you know this already, some of you may not, but numbers uh, in the Bible have importance. But in the book of Revelation, that sort of importance is like given steroids, right? It is magnified at a whole different level than it is anywhere else in the Bible because the book of Revelation is filled with symbols, And it's filled with um, things that link back to the Old Testament to try to give us a greater picture of what's going on. And this number seven, not only does it have this idea of completeness about it, but it also has this idea of being set apart or being holy would be another word for what it means to be set apart. And so Jesus very clearly references this idea that he is set apart and inside of him is the full completeness of who God is but here's the second thing I want you to notice about this that Jesus is referencing the Old Testament book of Isaiah right here in fact Isaiah is a book that contained all kinds of prophecies it was written 800 years before Jesus was born and Isaiah would have been well-known by the audience. They had been reading it for years and years, looking forward to it because one of the things that it contained was this prophecies of the Messiah, the coming King. And since I didn't know this reference before I started studying this, I thought we would look at it together real quick. Here it is, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. It says this, it says, There shall come forth a shoot, From the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord now this prophecy from Isaiah had a couple of different pieces in it now, remember, this is 800 years before Jesus. And here's the first prophecy that it says. It says that the Messiah would come from the family tree of King David. That's who Jesse was. He was David's dad. But if you notice it doesn't say the tree, it says the stump of. And so Isaiah predicts very rightly so that it was no longer going to be an Israel that was controlled by a royal family Of Jesse's family in fact the stump represents that that whole family has been cut down and removed from the royal lineage and 800 years before Jesus that's a big deal because there were all kinds of conversations that were happening about who the real king was in Israel at this time In fact, so many conversations were happening right here as Isaiah was writing that the kingdom was literally splitting apart. One group of people choosing to continue to follow the line and the lineage of King David and his family and the others, a whole different king. And so this was a big conversation that was going on. And for Isaiah to all of a sudden drop that the Messiah was going to come out of the family of David, who was no longer even considered royal, was a big deal. But then, verse 2, if you count it up, there are seven spirits of the Lord that are in there. It starts with spirit of the Lord and then it goes to the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of mind, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven. Seven spirits. You see, Jesus was pointing back to this to say, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was to come. I have already come. And I am still the one that is yet to come again. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting on, and I'm also the one that you're still waiting on. That's me. What a big thing to drop for a church. I've already fulfilled part of this, and I will continue to fulfill some of this in the future. Now, as we've been going through the text, we've used a formula to look at each of the letters. We've said that there are four themes that um, kind of framework each of these letters. The first thing is, is that there's accommodation. There's something that is good that is said about the church. The second thing is, is there's some sort of a complaint, something that is held against the church. Then there's some sort of cause for why that complaint exists. And finally, a cure for how to take care of it. It's a great thing if you haven't been going back and using that template to look at those churches, go back and look at each one of them and see what it is that Jesus says about each of those categories. But here it is, for the very first time, there is nothing good said about this church. The previous five churches have had something good said about them and Jesus drops in and says, I know your works but in fact, you are dead. You might have had a good name, but you really aren't doing anything. Now, I really love how the message paraphrases this idea. By the way, let me give you a plug real quick for why I love reading the Bible on an app of some sort. All right, here's why. It's because you can change between a couple of different versions, okay? And sometimes that can drop some incredible insight. I want to tell you something about some different versions or translations that are out there. There are really two main types of translations, right? The first type of translations is what we call like a word-for-word translation. These are, so I generally teach from what's called the ESV, the English Standard Version, right? And it's a word-for-word translation of stuff. Other good word-for-word translations, the NIV, right? It tries to do a good job of bringing contemporary language to it, but it's still a word-for-word word sort of a translation. Here's another one, the H uh, C S B. Right? It stands for the Holman Christian, but I joke about it because Lifeway um, is the one who now runs that version of the Bible. And Lifeway is owned by, or well, not owned by any longer, but it's a, a part of Southern Baptist. And so we always joke that this is the hardcore Southern Baptist Bible, right? So if you want to read the, the hardcore Southern Baptist Bible, go for it, all right? It's a word-for-word word translation. But there's a second type of translation that exists out there, and it's called a paraphrase or a thought For thought translation in other words instead of saying this word in the Greek means this and so we pluck those two things together and then as we get all the words we try to smooth it out that's what word-for-word tries to do instead this says this is a thought an idea an idiom that if we were to use this kind of idiom in the world today it would be similar and so that's what they do the words don't match up for the meaning of the words but it tries to give you the same capturing of the idea of what's going on So some popular versions of paraphrases, the message is one of them. It's not good if you're going to do some sort of word study on stuff, but it is good if you want to get an idea about what the text is talking about. Right? The Amplified Bible, another one that does this kind of thought for thought. And finally, the New Living. All three of those are this paraphrase. They are a thought for thought sort of piece. Now, What I love about the message is sometimes it helps me get a different grasp on what the text is saying. And so here's what it says. This same text that we just read in the message. He says, I see right through your work. That sounds a little bit different already. Doesn't it? I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead stone dead up on your feet. Take a deep breath maybe there is life in you yet, but I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's word has been completed. Hmm. So here it is. Jesus comes to this church and instead of saying anything really good about them, he calls them out. The first thing he says to them after telling them who he is, he says, you're a bunch of nominal Christians. Nominal. Nominal means in name only. In other words, you have taken on my name. You're saying that you are a Christian, a Christ follower, that you are like me, but that's as far as it goes. You're just saying it. You know, today, seven out of ten people in America say that they are a Christian. 73%. did you know that only three out of 10 go to church at least once a month? In fact, let's just take this letter for a second. I know it was intended for an individual body, but I want to take it up to a national conversation for just a second because we are a nation that claims to be a Christian nation. And in our past that could have been really true but I think it's really hard to continue that claim today in fact today right now over 50 churches are meeting for the very last time in America they'll close their doors after today unless we all think that That's like some totally other denomination or other groups of people. Maybe that's Roman Catholics or maybe that's Lutherans or or Methodists. No, listen, our tribe, the Southern Baptist tribe, over 900 churches closed their doors last year. That's 20 a Sunday. Mm. Our nation is dying. And so are our churches. And Jesus comes and he screams at this church, wake up! He wants to get their attention and make sure that they are not sleeping. They're not sleeping on the job. You know, I I love this. I'm just going to. I'm gonna nerd out for a second on you guys, alright? I know, I know you guys love it when I nerd out, so I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna tell you that I'm gonna do it, alright? So the word wake up right here, the root of this word is Gregorio. Alright? And Gregorio is where we get the name Greg from, right? It's a good name. And it literally means to wake up, to keep watch. And and I love how this idea ties into the city's. History. You see, I told you that this city was a, 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 an incredible fortress that it seemed like nobody could ever get into it, and they wanted to army after army attack because they had so much great wealth. And it seemed like the only way to attack was the same way to come up that, that south winding road, and the armies could just pick you off every time, and you they just nobody could ever get to them. But twice the city was conquered, twice. And it was done the exact same way both times. You see, the guards believed that nobody could climb the walls, that nobody could make the 1,500 feet journey up the cliffs and up over the walls to get in. And on two different occasions, a small band of men picked their way up the cliff sides and up into the city and opened up the gates from the inside. You see, here's what happened. Because the guards believed that nobody could do that, they quit watching the walls. Had they been watching, they could have easily picked those guys out. They could have shot them or thrown spears or rocks or anything. It wouldn't have taken much to to get them off of the wall at all. But instead, they were asleep. And the enemy came like a thief in the middle of the night and stole everything. Now, I don't know on either one of those two occasions what happened to the guards afterwards. I can't imagine it was very good though, right? I can't imagine that anything good happened. Listen, they were the guards, they were the protectors of the city, but in reality, they were that only in name only because they did not guard and they did not protect the city. Instead, they were asleep. And it'd be bad enough if it happened once, but it happened twice. Jesus says to this church. He says I have not found your works to be complete yet In other words, the jobs not done So get up Get up I'm going to jump on down in the text for just a second Let's skip down to verse 5 and then hopefully we're going to tie all of this together Verse 5 was probably the toughest verse this week for me. Here's what it says. It says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now you may say, Charles, I don't understand what was so difficult uh, about this set of verses. It, I mean, it, it, as you read it, it sounds like a really great promise, right? I mean, here it is, the one who conquers. Um, I will never blot out his name. And, and you're right, it, it is. But a lot of people have used this verse, verse 5, to attack it, uh, something that I believe. See, I believe in an idea that is called once saved, always saved, Right? In other words it means that once a person makes a decision to become a follower of Jesus there is nothing that they could ever do they couldn't be bad enough they couldn't out the grace of God in order to lose the salvation the free gift of eternal life that he's given them but then those who would say that my that belief is wrong say well look right here it says that there are those who their names will be blotted out. I mean, you only get your name in the book of life if you become a follower of Jesus. And this says that those names could be blotted out. And to be honest, that seems like a really good argument. It seems like maybe what I was taught growing up was wrong. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about that one of the things that we value here. We have a great concern over right doctrine or teaching the right things. And so I felt like I had this responsibility, not only to myself, but to all of us to talk about, can we lose our salvation? Is that a possibility? Is that something that scripture is teaching right here? Now, let me back up for just a second. Because in jumping into this, I I need to give you a couple of other things that, that I believe and that I know that the Bible teaches. Here's the first one, is that we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn our way into eternal life. You cannot possibly be good enough in order to make it. Some people have described their lives as a scale, and they believe that if I have more good things in my life than I have bad things in my life, then that must mean that I'm a good person and God would have to accept me. And if that's the case, then somebody who commits a murder and stands in front of a judge should only have to say to a judge, judge, I know that I committed this murder and that was a really bad thing, But look at all the money over here that I have given to the poor. Look at all the community hours of service that I have done. All of these good things should outweigh this one bad thing. And so that means that I'm a good person, not a bad person. So you can't put me to death for this crime. Why does it make any sense? If there's a crime, it deserves a punishment. It doesn't matter how good the person has been, if they've committed a crime, then it, if there's a punishment for the crime, and that's the same for you and me. God says that there is a punishment that exists for sin. And so there's nothing that I can possibly do to work my way into heaven. So if that's the case, if I can't work my way in, let me just ask the other question about can I... Work my way out. The punishment for sin is the same. Doesn't matter if you told a lie or if you murdered somebody. In God's eyes, He says it's all the same. We have this tilted scale about those two things lies way down here, murders way up here. But God says, no, they're the same. You've broken my law and my commandment, and you're no longer perfect. And it takes perfection in order to make it into heaven with me. <laughs> and so the question becomes this if I can't earn it, if it's not something that I earned, then on what grounds would I lose it? it's not something that I earned, it was given to me as a reward for how I behaved or acted or did something, then on what ground could I possibly lose this? Here's the second thing that I come at this idea of once saved, always saved with, and that is that Christ died once for all sin. Christ died once for all sin. You see, the Bible is very clear that Jesus only died one time. Jesus died one time. And in one time, he died for the penalty of all sin. Not some sin, not the sins that had already happened, not the sins that were just happening right then, but all sin, which included future sin. And so... In this idea of somebody being able to do something bad enough that they would lose their salvation, you end up with this question about, does Jesus have to die again if, for their sins? If they did something bad enough to get rid of the, the precious gift that he had done of taking all of the punishment for them, And I I look at that and I go, well, that seems like uh, an incredible quandary about if I continue to commit new sins, which I'm going to because I'm not perfect, right? And every time I commit a new sin, that that means that I'm putting Jesus back on the cross again and he has to die for my sin all over again. No, he was a once and for all. It was all taken care of at the moment that he died on the cross. And Jesus Check this out. Jesus doesn't wait for me to ask for forgiveness in order to forgive my sin. It was already forgiven the moment that he took the penalty on the cross. So then I come back to this text. Right? Here it is. It's troubling. Because it looks like it says that Jesus blots out names. But I read it again and it says that he will not blot out a name. He will not Blot out You see, this is not a, the inverse is not necessarily true on this passage because it is a promise to those who conquer that their names will be found in the book of life. He will not, those who conquer, he will not blot out their names. There is nothing that will take them out of the book. By the way, I love this. The Bible is really clear that those who are connected to Christ that they will be conquerors and overcomers by the blood of the lamb, the one that was slain. Check out this verse. It's in Romans eight thirty-seven. It says, no, by the way, you can back up this week and read all these things that are around this verse, but it's so good. Jesus, excuse me, Paul says, no, in all of these things, we need to know that we are more than conquerors through him. That's Jesus who loved us. We're more than conquerors. Listen, listen. this promise was for those who conquer. And Paul says, because of Jesus, we're more than conquerors. But I don't want you to miss this. Because I think we've used this idea of once saved, always saved to be this wonderful crutch that if you said some magic prayer in your life, that that means that everything's taken care of. And you don't have to worry about anything in your entire world. But I want you to catch this. There is a requirement. There is a requirement of relationship in order to be redeemed. If there is no relationship, there is no redemption. So this idea of could somebody be blotted out of the book of life, Jesus says the only ones who get written in the book of life are those who I have a relationship with. I don't write anybody else in. I'm not going to declare anybody else's mind to the father in front of everybody. In fact, Jesus says when he was here in the gospels and doing his ministry on the earth, he says, I will declare to the father anybody who is willing to declare me to everybody else. In other words, if you say that you are his and you have a relationship with him, he says "Then I will say you are mine. That brings me to what I think the great thing that Jesus was asking of this church. I think he tells them that they needed a great connection. They needed a great connection. You see, Sardis had unplugged from the power source. Jesus said to them to strengthen what remains. You see, they were in real trouble because the vast people that were inside of that church were not connected to Jesus they had him in name only but they weren't connected to the real power and no relationship with him. Bill Heyer described Sardis this way he said it was filled with people who were just going through the motions instead of the church being like a battleship it was like a cruise ship It was filled with passengers on board who were just alone for the ride. Here's the real tragedy of Sardis. Sardis was a weak and powerless church. It was a church that made no difference in other people's lives. Listen, you want to know why the church in America is dying today? It's those exact words right there. because so much of the church that is all around us is a weak and powerless church that is making no difference in people's lives. And the church seems to be vaccinating all kinds of people. Vaccination gives you a dead virus so that your body can acclimate to it. And that way it can be protected against it. And the church in America seems to be giving this dead version of Jesus to people. And then we wonder why people walk away from the church. Because they had a fake dead version of who Jesus is. He wasn't real. People around them weren't connected to him. There was no power there. There was no life change going on. And instead of being infected by the real thing, they were affected by a fake thing. I think Jesus is screaming at this church. He's telling them, wake up. Don't be asleep. Don't miss out on my power. He says, what you need is to be connected to me in a way that is life-giving. I want to give you life abundant that changes everything. And my prayer more than anything else is that we're not a weak and a powerless church that makes no difference in people's lives. I can't think of a worse thing to be said about a church than that. Jesus, I hate this letter. I hate this letter because I look around and I know how easy it is to fall into this because I see church after church around us filled with people who carry the name, carry the banner. Maybe they're members on some church role and they think that being a member on a church role makes them a member of the book of life. You didn't say that anywhere. Jesus, I pray that we would be a church who is connected to you. Jesus, that we would see your, all of you, your spirit moving amongst us in a mighty and powerful way. God, that this wouldn't be a place that we just come and sing songs and hear a message and walk out and feel good about ourselves. But God, that it's a place where we're challenged, that we wrestle with what it is that your word that is your word is not dead. It's alive and it's changing and it still has meaning and importance to us today. God, I pray that we would not just be A fool that doesn't even recognize our own mistakes. God, that we would not just be smart and learn from our own mistakes, but God, that we would be wise. You've given us an entire book filled with wisdom about how it is to live a life filled with abundance and overflowing. God, we can't do this on our own. You know, maybe... As we were talking about this, some of you, the Holy Spirit said something to you. That deep pit of your stomach feeling of of knowing that something's off and not right. Maybe you've been a nominal Christian, an in-name only sort of a person. Listen, I don't think those nominal Christians were written down in the book of life. I don't say that to scare anybody in here, but I do say it to say that if Jesus is calling out to you to wake up, don't sit there and stay asleep. At the end, I'll be in the back, and if you're saying, you know what, I don't know what's going on, but I need to respond. Come back and see me. Jesus, I just can't give you all the glory and want.